Welcome to another Practical Neurology podcast case report discussion. Uh, we're back for our third time and uh, enjoying it very much. So, uh, pleasure to welcome Ruth Wood again. Hi, Ruth. Hi. And Zinu Tai. Hi, everyone. Great. So, uh, we've got another couple of excellent cases among many in this month's issue. And I think, uh, Zinu, you're going to kick us off with this unusual case of bilateral hypertrophic olivary degeneration in symptomatic palatal tremor. So we were just debating whether it's palatal or palatal, but we're going to go with palatal and we don't need anyone to write in uh, unless they've got a, a definitive answer. Okay, away you go. All right, thanks very much. Yes, so this case report is entitled Bilateral Hypertrophic Olivary Degeneration in Symptomatic Palatal Tremor. And the author is Thomas Stoker from Cambridge University Hospitals. So it kicks off by describing a 78-year-old man with variable slurring of speech for a month, as well as swallowing difficulties. His past medical history includes ulcerative colitis, hypertension, aortic valve disease, ischemic heart disease, and transient ischemic attack. Well, let's let's just pause there, actually. Why don't we... Because, you know, slurring of speech is one of those symptoms that actually the differential's quite short, isn't it? And, and I certainly know that a lot of these patients get wrongly sent straight to a TIA clinic. If they're over 60, then it's assumed that they must have had some sort of uh, vascular event because it just simply because it's slurring and and, uh, and that's, uh, you know, usually um, not the case. So, um, Ruth, when, when you're sort of getting a case, this is, we're told it's variable and we're told it's for a month. So I guess we haven't really been told how it came on. Uh, and obviously it might be different if it came on very suddenly. Um, but what, what's in your kind of broad differential in these sorts of cases? What are you kind of thinking of beyond someone who's had a vascular event? Well, I think the first thing I'd be thinking, as you said, it's not sudden onset and it's variable, which makes a underlying vascular cause a lot less likely. Um, I'd be thinking about maybe it's part of a bigger cerebellar syndrome. So I'd be interested to know what the rest of the examination showed and whether there were any other features suggestive that this was cerebellar-related speech difficulty. And then I think you'd need to do a kind of a targeted speech examination, really, just to to see, you know, is there an element of a bulbar or a pseudobulbar palsy and, you know, a full cranial nerve exam? Yeah, I like to sort of break down speech into into language and, and articulation. I mean, I clearly, we're, I think we're being directed here much more towards articulation in, in the use of the word speech. And then I suppose thinking also about, about whether it's extended to dysphagia. I think there can sometimes be uh, quite an interesting uh, a clue, really, when someone develops very rapid dysphagia, really without any preceding dysarthria, and that can often point to a sort of structural cause in the in the um, uh, brainstem. Uh, not not absolutely reliably, but but I think typically, with some of the uh, the other causes, we'd expect a period of dysarthria, and then as it deteriorates, then we would develop dysphagia. So here we've just been told about dysarthria, and and. And I suppose the interesting thing is the patient has presented apparently within a month, uh, and so we're seeing them quite quite soon. Um, we haven't been told, and I don't think we are told, are we, Zinu, whether it came on suddenly. We've just sort of assumed not. But uh, do we ever get told about the onset? Not not in that sense. Uh, what we are told is there's 
this variable presentation. And, and I guess that's quite an interesting term to use and certainly something I'd want to clarify because that might point you down certain differentials such as a neuromuscular problem if you're thinking of perhaps a fatigability causing variation in symptoms. And I suppose other differentials would follow from that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think definitely we, we we often think about myasthenia, don't we? And, you know, I, I, I'm not a, a, a subspecialty expert in myasthenia, but I think about it a lot because I see a lot of, of motor neuron disease. And, and, and I have to say in that setting, it really is very, very unusual to see this as a presenting feature of myasthenia without any involvement of ptosis at all. It's not impossible that, and I have seen cases actually with, with no ptosis, no eye involvement at all, but but simply uh, dysarthria. But I think we'd, we'd be sort of more expecting a little bit more than just slurring of the speech, but certainly in the differential. I think motor neuron disease, uh, my only comment really would be that it'd be pretty unusual to have seen someone within a month, uh, and that's actually uh, would be... Uh, surprising um, but it does happen and unfortunately that that would then typically mean it was a very aggressive case because things are obviously moving quite quickly so yeah I don't think either of those just simply on what we've been told so far would particularly uh, uh, be, be front of our mind it would it would seem a bit strange and it moves quickly on to, to the examination where we we, we kind of get a clue in really uh, that, that then frames how we think about it so what what do we find on examination uh, Zinyu? So on examination, they found rhythmic movements of this patient's palate, described as approximately two hertz in frequency. And I would just uh, suggest to listeners that there is a great video in the supplementary material that they can see in regards to this examination. There were also rhythmic breaks in his voice when trying to sustain a vocal tone. We're also told that he could not perform tandem gait, but there was no real limb ataxia on examination. Okay, so Ruth, what what are you sort of uh, making of that? Really, have you seen a palatal uh, tremor before? I haven't actually. So, um, but as uh, Zin, you said, the videos for this case are really interesting. So, I'd second that recommendation to watch. So, I think if this came up in clinic or I came across this patient, I would be calling a friend probably at this point. But it's interesting that um, there's clearly other signs. The fact that he's unable to tandem walk means that it's not completely confined just to the palate, but then the, there's no limb ataxia suggestive of a sort of more widespread cerebellar issue. Yeah, and, and I think broadly, I, I often think about situations where there's a sort of loss of function, which obviously we're used to most of the time in, in vascular events. And when there's a gain of function, and we'll come on to why there's a sort of gain of uh, movement disorder here. The other thing I noticed that we, we hear about later is that it used to be called palatal myoclonus, and thank goodness, because I was, I was worried that someone was going to ask what's the difference between myoclonus and tremor, and then we'd be here for about three hours. But I think the Movement Disorder Society decided to, uh, to just um, make them interchangeable and go with tremor a, a couple of years ago. Um, so that, that makes life easier. Yeah, so we've got this um, very characteristic movement disorder. And actually, once you have seen it, and, and, and certainly this is why this case is so good, really, you won't have any difficulty uh, when you see it again. And, and the differential in terms of the anatomy is, is quite narrow, but not necessarily the cause. So take us through uh, what that leads us to think, Zinyu. Yeah, so palatal tremor, as you've alluded to, really is quite suggestive of a specific movement disorder that is related to a lesion in the brainstem. 
And palatal tremor can either be essential, so a sort of a primary form with normal imaging or symptomatic uh, or a secondary palatal tremor associated with a lesion of the guillon molloray triangle. So this is sort of a virtual triangle in the brainstem, which comprises of the, the red nucleus of the brainstem, the inferior olivary nucleus of the medulla, and the contralateral dentate nucleus of the cerebellum. And together these form this dentato-rubro-olivary pathway. And damage to this area can cause ocular palatal tremor. Uh, and in terms of this case presentation as a palatal tremor. So MR imaging would be the key investigation for this patient. Yeah, so before we discuss that in a bit more detail, what, what did the MRI show in this particular case? So they went on to do an MRI scan of the brain and it showed hypertrophic degeneration of the inferior olivary nuclei, but with no specific cause identified. So essentially a change in this Guillaume-Marlerate triangle. And Ruth, are you aware from, from your reading what sort of pathologies can kind of uh, uh, interfere with this? functional triangle? Yeah, so I think the differential can be fairly wide um, if it's unilateral, but if there's bilateral changes, the, um, the list of causes is significantly uh, smaller. And so I think in unilateral causes, um, things like uh, demyelination, tumours, infarction um, or vascular causes, I think tumours as well can disrupt the kind of virtual triangle um, and there can be vascular malformations as well. But in the, uh, in the bilateral cases, often an underlying cause isn't identified. Um, and there's this uh, condition called uh, hypertrophic olivary degeneration, which I think Sinyu is probably going to discuss a bit more as to, as to you know, the underlying cause of that. But it can be linked to, um, I believe, a tau pathology in some subcases, which is interesting and potentially suggests a primary neurodegenerative process. Yeah, it's interesting that we've got we've we've clearly got a quite a, a rare movement disorder. We, we're pretty confident in where the anatomy is, and it's the, this sort of taking the breaks off really the olivary nuclei, which then sort of hypertrophy. But I was struck by the term essential tremor because I, essential palatal tremor because I suppose what they really mean there is imaging negative, and you know we should be cautious. I think by just because we can't see anything on the MRI, because my understanding is you don't always see the the enlargement uh, or the signal change. Of course, it, it could well be microvascular. We won't see that. And, and you know, I'm, I'm kind of thinking in this age group, really, that, that it may well be microvascular, actually. And I, and I would want, I'd be interested to go back and sort of see if, if the patient sort of felt they were suddenly aware of it uh, one day, uh, having not been the day before. So I think that has to be a lead. And demyelination would be very unusual here. And we can't see a tumour. We can't see a vascular malformation. So, so I think... Um, Essential shouldn't lead us to sort of feel that we, we have no handle on it. Um, what I was really shocked about was seeing that there is such an entity as a functional cause for this. Um, now, you know, functional disorders, uh, of course, we've moved on from any simplistic sense of, of kind of voluntary uh, induction. But, but this is really quite a difficult one to imagine, really, and, and to be comfortable with feeling that someone, you know, with a sort of regular... Um, continuous palatal tremor, uh, that could have an underlying so-called functional cause, really. Uh, so I'm, I'm a bit uncomfortable about that. What do you think, Zinyu? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And as you said, the distinction between those two terms of essential palatal tremor 
and what we have here is essentially the imaging and whether the imaging is negative. And certainly in this case, this gentleman has quite a significant vascular comorbidity. So I would be quite suspicious of certainly a vascular or microvascular uh, cause. There is an attempt in the literature, however, to distinguish essential platal tremor as a sort of form of a functional presentation. And, and there are features of, for example, entrainability and distractibility, which has been described in certain cases. Um, and some have then gone on to suggest that this may be a functional problem. But I agree with you, I'd be quite suspicious of, or rather reluctant to put that label on someone uh, straight away, especially if there are risk factors. Yeah, I don't, I mean, you, you may, not have, may not have been clear in the reading, but how on earth would you entrain somebody's palatal tremor? I mean, that's extraordinary, isn't it? I'll have to have a read about that. But uh, yeah, I don't quite know how you would entrain that. Um, but uh, yeah, well, I, I think that's right. I think we're going to, if microvascular causes are common, um, then of course we're, we're, we're going to be quite happy with or, or comfortable with the fact we're not going to see anything on MRI. And I think essential there is not quite the right the right term, really. So um, they, they go on, don't they, to talk um, uh, about this interesting finding that there may be some finding of tau deposition. Um, I guess it's not likely to be a huge case series of these. So, so what did you make of that? Do you think it could just be uh, incidental, um, coincidental? Uh, what, what did you think, Zinyu? I did wonder, and I suppose I'd have to take a closer look at the the case series. These were post-mortem studies. Uh, and for example, we know that tau pathology is more common as we get older. So I have, have to have a look and see whether that would compare with a, an age match control. However, I believe the case series that they discuss looks at a specific subtype of palatal tremor with other progressive symptoms, including ataxia. So I, I, I guess that could lend towards some form of neurodegenerative process. Well, the one I wanted to highlight, because again, it, it has come up in my emerging neuro disease clinic. It is rare. I think I've only seen a couple of cases over a couple of decades, really, which is adult onset Alexander disease. And, and I think the, the, uh, it's been identified now in the, the uh, GFAP gene mutations. And, and certainly you can see palatal tremor there. Uh, and uh, but typically there's the sort of progressive story of bulbar dysfunction. And of course, that's how they come to an, an MND clinic. It, and particularly when it's older cases, often the, the the case series will you know they will be younger people, but certainly it's it's very common to find cases in the thirties, forties, fifties, and and there have been ones described in the sixties. And I'm pretty confident that that, that the one I saw was in their seventies. So it does happen, and it's definitely on on my list of of things to think about. And it's largely an imaging diagnosis, and we see this characteristic sort of atrophy really of the of the medulla rather than the, the um, hypertrophy of the olives in this case. That is definitely a degenerative differential to be aware of. And, um, and perhaps that, that was, uh, you know, has overlapped somehow with, uh, with those, those uh, case series, which I'm um, just looking at the dates on those. Yeah, they may predate, um, or certainly the, 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 the 2014 um, study may predate the, the, the sort of understanding of adult onset Alexander's. And then just tell us about the oscillopsia, uh, Zinyu, because there wasn't any here, but that's that's certainly something that's described in the sort of Fuller syndrome, isn't it, of oculopalatal tremor? Yes, that's right. So in terms of the full syndrome of oculopalatal tremor, um, as well as the palatal symptoms, uh, patients can also present with oscillopsia, um, also in sometimes um, ophthalmoplegia, but more commonly this 
nystagmus and and the oscillopsy itself can be quite debilitating um, and cause quite a lot of trouble for the patient whereas the palatal tremor itself is somewhat more of a nuisance um, and perhaps a concern but most patients with that are not as uh, disabled as if you had oscillopsia. Yeah, and, and there, there was a, uh, another uh, aspect that um, uh, we ought to just mention that the patients often will, will be aware of a clicking noise, um, and, and that's how they sort of pick it up. And uh, that, that can be an important thing for them to... In fact, yes, it's mentioned there that ear clicks are common. Um, or they say they're rare in the symptomatic form, so that's interesting. It's interesting, but, but I guess uh, it's, it's worth asking in the history. Ruth, any other thoughts on on this? What did you make of the uh, the sort of biochemistry of it? We've got this sort of almost releasing the brakes, really, from uh, a GABAergic inhibitory system. Yeah, so I initially found it quite hard to get my head around the fact that something could be hypertrophic and degenerated at the same time. But I think the understanding I came to, and please sort of jump in if this isn't correct, is that it's the input that's degenerating as a result of the disinhibition from the GABAergic inputs from the red nucleus to the inferior olivary nucleus kind of um, degenerating, then the um, olive itself hypertrophies in response. And I think after about six months, um, you may then begin to see some atrophy afterwards. So I thought that that was quite um, an interesting concept of something degenerating, but getting larger. And actually, interesting, when I was thinking about the tau element, you know, when we see pathologies with tau, we usually see atrophy or shrinkage. So I was just wondering whether they were sort of distinct mechanisms or, you know, where exactly the tau would be having an effect within that um, anatomical triangle, really. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, really, isn't it? It it does suggest, really, that there's interruption to the pathway um, through, uh, through, through the sort of biochemical release or a neurotransmitter release really and and then a response an attempted compensatory response that results in hypertrophy versus the more primary degenerative um uh, which which we're still a little bit in the dark about yeah so zindi any final thoughts on this before we move on to the second case no just a very interesting case with associated neuroanatomy and and as with many instances like this the treatment is still quite tricky, quite uh, quite tricky to find um, effective treatment. And I think for certainly the palatal tremor, people have found some success with botulinum toxin, but the ocular part of things are much harder to manage. Yes, that's right. I mean, th- these sort of cases are extremely interesting. They're important for understanding anatomy. And actually, we shouldn't underestimate um, how important it is for for patients really to understand what's going on um, but they do give neurology a bad name of course because they sort of this is what uh, people say that we like to do really is is find some interesting pathway and then we can't actually sort it out but but I think there are a range of treatments there and of course I think with time people then tend, uh, may well sort of habituate um, to some extent there may be some compensation but um, very important to know about um, very important to image of course um, and to get the correct diagnosis so that you can prognosticate. So, um, yeah, really instructive case. Thanks. So, uh, Ruth, we'll move to uh, to your case. So um, you're going to tell us about a very personal, uh, and I do like these these things in practical neurology, these uh, me and my neurological illness sections, where people very kindly kind of talk about their own personal experience of, of neurological illness and its consequences. And uh, this, is, uh, this is quite a... a a shocking case, really, of near drowning in Parkinson's disease. So uh, tell us tell us a little bit about this, please. 
Yes, so as you say, it's written from a first-person perspective, which sort of grips your attention, really, by Dr Robert Rutherford, who's a respiratory consultant working in Galway. And then there's a comment at the end from, um, I'm assuming it's his neurologist, uh, Dr Richard Walsh. And so Dr Rutherford's a 56-year-old man who has a 10-year history of Parkinson's disease. And he writes that he had surgery uh, for deep brain stimulation in October 2020. We're not told the site of the stimulation. And before this, I think he was a regular sea swimmer. Um, And then he noticed a couple of years later in February 2022, while sea plunging, that he had some difficulty treading water. And then later that year, in August 2022, he attempted a 50 metre lake swim and noticed that he uh, rapidly got into quite extreme difficulties about 30 metres out from the shore. He says he'd taken his um, L-dopa, carbidopa, a regular dose about 90 minutes before he went into the water on an empty stomach. But while he was in the water, he felt his arms were fatiguing quite rapidly. And he called out to his father, who was um, on the shore, telling him that he was drowning and that he needed help. And thankfully, it sounds like there was a a young man nearby who was able to help him out of the water. And afterwards, he reports being sort of very weak, short of breath and unable to stand up for a good five minutes after the event. Uh, And it sounds like this came as quite a shock as someone who'd previously been quite a capable swimmer and had reasonable control of his Parkinson's disease from his L-dopa and his deep brain stimulation. Yeah. And and so, so Zinu, I mean, when he, when he read that first paragraph, did you feel it might be a particular issue with that dose that maybe it hadn't worked? It wasn't taken 90 minutes before, maybe it was wearing off? Or did you think it was something to do with the deep brain stimulator? Was the water cold? I suppose these were the sort of things that were going through my mind. I mean, it's clearly this is someone, I think we get the hint, this is someone who is probably pretty athletic. I mean, he he described himself as a regular summer sea swimmer of average ability. So, uh, you know, if you're living in uh, Galway in Ireland and you're a regular summer sea swimmer, then uh, you're pretty hardy, really. Um, it's spectacular uh, coastline, uh, but but not that warm. So, um, y- you know, I, I was sort of thinking in my own mind what had gone wrong here other than simply uh, having a difficult condition that obviously they had adapted to pretty well. Did you have any any thoughts or did you just think, well, this sort of freezing of, of activity and movement happens? Yeah, I think I wondered whether this was related to a freezing episode in of his Parkinson's. And of course, it's not really described before that. And I suppose sort of reading ahead or rather thinking, you know, what's actually being described here, I, I then thought to myself whether this is perhaps not as straightforward as a, a motor problem and a motor problem which is now um, not overcome by the medicines or the deep brain stimulation, but rather whether there is some alternate sort of pathway in which it's being affected here, or perhaps is not being affected by his medicines and uh, deep brain stimulation that is being affected. And that really led me down to wondering about the sort of the non-motor aspects of Parkinson's which could come into play here um, and, and sort of thinking of that. Yeah. Ruth, later on, in, in, as we read on, what, what sort of more information did, did we get in terms of, I guess, what was kind of considered, ruled out? Just talk us through a little bit of that. Well, um, he looked himself into the literature um, and um, 
talks about a survey that was done of um, patients with Parkinson's disease, which actually uh, found that about a quarter of them felt that their swimming was okay, but but the vast majority felt their swimming had deteriorated and nearly half of those surveyed reported a near-drowning experience. And obviously, it was a survey-based study and the response rate was sort of less than 10%, so there might be a bit of responder bias there, but it suggests that actually swimming issues and near-drowning experiences aren't isolated events uh, for people with Parkinson's disease, and it's something perhaps that warrants a bit more research. And he then goes on to talk about a cross-sectional study where they looked at um, 13 men with idiopathic Parkinson's disease and actually um, assessed uh, assessed their swimming ability. And actually, interestingly, um, only around 25% of them were able to swim despite being pretty good swimmers before the onset of disease. And they found that strokes that involved greater levels of uh, coordination, so front crawl as opposed to breaststroke, was actually affected more, suggesting that perhaps there was an element of coordination. And they also found that um, when these patients were trying to mimic the swimming movements, actually adding in the breathing, their performance deteriorated, even when on land. And so the more complex the activity, the worse the performance. And I think um, quite a few patients as well reported that they found more difficulty with their legs than with their arms. And actually our... um, Dr. Rutherford actually talks about um, his arms fatiguing. So you could hypothesise that if you're not able to use your legs so much and keep your body horizontal in the water, that's putting a lot more reliance on your upper limbs, which then fatigue a lot more rapidly and you get into difficulty quite quickly. Yeah, I I definitely, uh, I came to the conclusion um, reading through all of that and and it's been really well researched. And I was surprised that these sort of studies have been done, actually. They were even looking at whether DBS was on or off and... I came to the conclusion really that swimming is clearly, I suppose not unsurprisingly, involving a whole range of coordination. And I think the link with breathing is very important. And when you're treading water, of course, it's slightly, it's not quite the same as a swimming, really. You're having to do a sort of different movement and you are having to time it with breathing. And so, uh, yeah, it, it quickly starts to become something you think, yeah, okay, that might be something we would do well to, to warn people about very specifically because there aren't many sporting activities where uh, where it's quite the same level of of coordination of limbs and breathing and um uh, well obviously the environment where if it if you're not doing it then uh, you're at risk of uh, of serious harm zinu what did you make of uh, of all those previous studies and 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 that sort of hypothesis yeah i thought it was it was really interesting and and again it sort of drew, drew my mind back to sort of motor circuits that we have in the brain and how you know we think of parkinson's disease as a as a motor problem, or rather one conception of Parkinson's disease is a motor problem, but really more and more we're thinking of it as a motor and non-motor issue. And I'm, I think trying to dissociate sort of the, the usual motor circuits that are being stimulated in DBS and other motor circuits that we perhaps embed in our cognition for everyday movements and perhaps non-everyday movements are, are also equally important. And the example that I always uh, think about is is cycling in Parkinson's disease. And I think most of us would have seen videos of people with very bad Parkinson's disease, very resistant to treatment, um, Parkinson's disease who are quite rigid and bradykinetic, and then they get on a bicycle and they're able to to cycle rather smoothly. And part of this is this sort of learnt motor circuit that maybe is not 
embedded in the basal ganglia anymore. And, and, and I thought it's interesting that even experienced swimmers have difficulty with the swimming. And, and, and it made me wonder whether that had something to do with it, maybe even a, a cognitive um, problem here. Well, yeah, I, I, I thought exactly the same. And, and of course, the, we're told that this is someone who, who does, you know, swimming wasn't a new thing to them. And so I was wondering whether why we hadn't had that effect. And of course, it, I imagine it's that's the basis of the sort of dance therapy that, that people are recommending now, a way of sort of activating new pathways in Parkinson's. And so, yeah, it, it does seem that this is this was a, a not a, a brand new activity, um, and yet cause severe problems. I was also wondering about the, the, the adrenaline response that must have occurred when when he realised that, that he might be drowning. And and that wasn't helpful. And, and I suppose that might not be a surprise that that didn't sort of allow a sort of escape, as it were, into new motor pathways to sort of rescue himself. I suppose once you pour adrenaline into the system in Parkinson's, that's probably unhelpful and probably uh, it increases the chances of a freezing phenomena. I don't know. Any, are you aware of any any sort of uh, data on that, or, or sort of um, experience from patients? I'm not so aware of any data, but I actually did wonder whether I think we've heard of the perhaps the burning house phenomena in people with Parkinson's disease. And again, someone who may be um, incredibly bradykinetic can suddenly get up and, yeah. and, and go. And and in this case, I wondered whether perhaps. The swimming itself involves a certain sort of level of tonic adrenaline prior to this stage where he fatigues. And, and I wondered whether that burning house effect wasn't there because of an initial flood of, uh, of adrenaline from the activity rather than a sudden burst out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a very good point. Well, uh, happily, um, it, uh, it didn't uh, result in drowning. And uh, we've got some commentary from from uh, the neurologist who, uh, yes, as you say, Ruth, I, th- I think is the neurologist looking after him. Do you th- is it going to change your your practice? Are you going to be particularly highlighting swimming now? I think I am actually uh, going to be finding out uh, about whether people are doing swimming because cold water swimming seems to be the thing to do now, um, and and so uh, probably it is it is um, more likely to happen. What do you think, Ruth? Yeah, I was interested in this idea that, you know, cold water plunging might be beneficial to patients with Parkinson's disease. So I tried to do a bit of reading around this and I found um, it was relatively, from what I could see, a relatively evidence-free zone. But maybe I just wasn't looking in the right places. But I think there's definitely a trend. Um, There's this uh, Dutch extreme athlete that kind of plunges into very cold water. Um, And I think a lot of Parkinson's patients have, um, have adopted this technique. There is a study that shows, I think you um, have, uh, they they looked at 10 young men and you increase a lot of noradrenaline and dopamine levels in your plasma after you've plunged into cold water. So there's an idea that perhaps it triggers some sort of dopamine release, which might be beneficial somehow in Parkinson's disease. But um, I think that area definitely needs more research. But yes, if lots of patients are doing this, obviously it's got safety implications. And I think they make a number of practical suggestions in the paper pretty much as we do with our epileptic patients about how to make it safe and perhaps if possible engaging in other forms of physical activity um, to kind of mitigate the risk well yeah I, I i have to say someone tried to persuade me to go cold water swimming and uh and i wasn't really persuaded that the evidence was there but i did agree to try a sort of quasi um you know alternative which was to 
to to stand in the shower when you turn it on in the morning and um uh, and I lost about a, a two times with that. Actually. It's really unpleasant and uh, it didn't make me feel any better. Or, and I don't think it raised any of my neurotransmitters uh, to any useful extent. But but perhaps we could we could suggest that there's some sort of study done on um, cold water showering in Parkinson's, which would be lower risk. And then we can see if the data are there. Not quite as scenic, of course, as, as, uh, as cold water swimming. Um, but there we go. Great case, really, and, and, and thanks again to the author for that, for sharing. Uh, I think it, it's definitely changed my clinical practice. I shall be specifically talking about that and warning, warning people about it along with driving. So uh, that's, that's another use of these sorts of cases, so uh, very helpful. Okay, well, thanks again for two excellent uh, case discussions, really interesting cases, lots more cases to read in this issue of Practical Neurology, so please... Uh, Please don't just uh, limit yourself to these two. And uh, we'll look forward to linking up with you again in the next issue with uh, two more cases. So thanks very much. Bye now. <laughs>